0: Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website at independent.org. We've got another fantastic show in store for you this evening, and I'm joined by our co-host, Amba Gagarian.
1: Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
0: Thanks, Amba. On today's show, we're going to get the latest from Crown Heights, where local activists have come to the aid of a family at risk of being evicted from their home they have lived in for 71 years.
1: We're also going to speak with a pair of baristas from one of the first Starbucks stores in New York City to file for union recognition.
0: And later in the show, we'll talk with cultural historian Kazimbe Balagoon about Black History Month and a pair of film screenings he's organized this month at the Maisel Documentary Center about W.E.B. Du Bois, and Audrey Lord. But first, Amba, you've been following an attempted eviction in Crown Heights that has stirred a fierce response from the community.
1: That's right. One month to the day after Hokel sorry, Governor Kathy Hokel ended the state's eviction moratorium, the Robinson family is fighting with the help of its neighbors to stay in the home that's been there since 1951 in Crown Heights at 954 Park Place. In this clip, you can hear Cherise Terrain and then her mother, Ms. Robinson, addressing supporters from the top step outside of her home on Friday after Marshall's arrived. Ms. Robinson's 98-year-old mother also lives at the home. So here
2: we'll go to the clip.
3: We have our day in court. We should not receive notice by law. We have to follow the law. We are supposed to receive notice. We never received notice of anything. It does not matter as long as you have money to pay, you yep, can play. Yes. And this is what the game is all about. Yes. And yes. it's a shame on the system. Yeah. You are creating a violent situation.
4: Yeah. This is causing arthritis, pain, struggle, cancer. Mentally, emotionally, and physically. This has destroyed my family. We're rising no matter what. That's yeah. right. My mother is 98 years old. She's still in her body. This is her home. They can come and they can galvanize. They're organized, but we're organized.
1: Yesterday, the landlord tried again to forcibly enter the home at 964 Park Place, and today the family was back in housing court while dozens of supporters refused to leave the house as police waited nearby. Joining us now to tell us about the situation are Sharice Terrain, who's been, you know, forcibly removed from her home. She's also a member of the Crown Heights Tenant Union. Nicholas Vargas of Brooklyn Eviction Defense and Joel Vine Gold of the Crown Heights Tenant Union. These are both groups that have worked to support the family. Nico, Joel and Sharice, welcome to the show. We got here, you here with us. Thank you for yep. having us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here among everything that's going on for you. So let's jump right into it. We're going to start with you, Nico and Joel, organizers. Can you just describe the scene right now at the home, the presence of the eviction defenders and update us on what happened with with housing court?
5: Yeah. So we're all present in the house right now. Uh, We've had a steady uh, flow and really kind of, you know, amazing Uh, uh, influx of community members, uh, members of our organizations who have kept the Stoop Watch alive uh, since Thursday. Um, We've been Stoop Watching, you know, for almost a week straight, day in and day out, uh, you know, in the early mornings uh, while the landlord had sent his goons to literally try to break in um, while police are terrorizing us, while there's literally been a cop car, multiple cop cars outside of Sharice's house, since the first day, um, we've just been holding space um, and uh, we reoccupied the home that is rightfully Sharice's um, and we have been keeping a presence here because we want to keep Sharice safe. Um, yeah. Hi. And, and- Go ahead. Oh, and you wanted us to update on the housing court situation? Yes. Sure, I, I can give a little
6: update. Um, so because of the depth and power of this struggle, um, you know, because of uh, the, the Robinson family and and the Terrain family's refusal to leave and the mass support of fellow tenants and community members from all over the neighborhood and all over Brooklyn, uh, when we were assaulted yesterday by uh, a, a goon squad of about 20, um, pro-landlord goons, uh, who took to the roofs to try to beat in the door, to the roof door. We, the locks held, our solidarity held, uh, and the issue was elevated to the Attorney General uh, and to the Mayor. The Attorney General personally appeared in uh, Brooklyn Housing Court today um, and, you know, is giving us some kinds of assurances uh, that something will be done. We don't believe we will leave it when we see it and direct action gets the goods. And that's what we have seen here with the heroic struggle of Sharice, of Queen Afua, uh, of her family and of, of the broader tenant movement. So there's another court date tomorrow at 1130 a.m. The court, uh, the case has been sent back to the judge who ordered the eviction in May of 2021 uh, when the moratorium had expired for just for a few days, had lapsed for just for a few days in that three day window. This eviction was ordered, um, which goes to show the cruelty and irrationality of the capitalist courts. It goes to show, uh, you know, that this judge personally told Charisse that he felt bad for the landlords and that he wished that he could order the execution of the warrant immediately. Um, So, you know, we shall not be moved. And and that's where we're at. Mm -hmm.
1: And Charisse, can you describe the history a little bit more of your case of, Owning the home, then renting it, um, and and what happened with getting um, the notices and not getting noticed when people stormed in. Okay, okay. well, just a little bit of a quick background: um, how we went from
3: being homeowners to renters is that we did not receive notice um, when they actually illegally. Um, brought us into Supreme Court back in 2015. Um, my grandmother, who is the rightful owner currently, who never received any money at all, um, who they stole her deed, um, never asked for her home to be sold, never asked for anyone to represent her in the sale of her home, and never received a benefit for the sale of her home, and none of these fraudulent attorneys had the authority to sell her home. Um... After they brought us into um, Supreme Court back in 2015 in July 8th, unbeknownst to the family, what they then did was make a second index um, case in Supreme Court as well to start up the injectment process in order to gain possession of the house. Once that happened, the current landlord's fortunate landlord, um, in his racketeering ring or working as a collective, also built an LLC, 964 Park Place. Based on that LLC and their collective, they then started the second Supreme Court case, then to sue my grandmother for the second time. So the first case, my grandmother was with uh, um, 964 Park Place and Gantz, Gantz LLC, which is also... um, Um, NETS management, which is also connected to the current fraudulent owner. My grandmother was on a case with them, too. I know it's very complicated. My grandma was also on a case with them as well. Once that happened, they then brought her into the the landlord tenant court. Once you get brought into the landlord tenant court eviction mill, you basically have no no longer in possession. So in, in the interim of that, they then, the attorneys themselves, put a two-way stipulation together, which the first judge in the Supreme Court is upholding without authority. They put the two-way stipulation together to say that this house is no longer my grandmother's. Mm -hmm. So they did a deed transfer by doing that, to take the equity that was in the house in order to do that. Once they did,
1: yeah. So now you're forced out of of ownership just because there is a lot of lingo in here. Just to make sure. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Just just to make sure our listeners can understand, essentially you're legally forced out of unlawfully, but through the courts forced out of ownership. And then let's fast forward to August of 2020, you get an eviction notice. And then if you can kind of quickly bring us to where we are now. So what happened is that um,
3: during that three-day lapse,
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right.
3: We felt in between that three day lapse. So in that three day lapse, we then get the eviction notice. They bring they drag us back into court <laughs> once again. And this is when this judge says this statement and he's angry about the moratorium, And he's angry that the landlords are no longer in complete power and they could, could no longer just stow um, um, tenants out in the street even though we're, you know, experiencing all these other harms. And he says this and I just start crying. So that's basically what happened. And then I remember contacting my um, union and they came out in full force within an hour fighting. And had it not been for them because no one else came to help us at all, mm-hmm. at all. Let's be very clear.
1: Um, and I hope and that's I answered your question. And that's I'm your and that's your tenants' union, Crown Heights tenants. T- absolutely, and Bay. So yes, so and that came brings, out together as a collective. Mm-hmm. That brings us to our last question, which is about this—the the sort of the positive thing in this, which is the collective action that we're seeing come to support you all. So, so Nico and Joel talk about eviction defense, um, and then talk about how others can get involved and what people should do if they're in a similar situation. You know, we know that Letitia James and city council member Chiyose were present at yesterday's eviction defense, but evictions are happening all over the city. And unfortunately, they are not all getting this attention. So how yeah. did you come together? How can people get involved in about a minute or so? And thank, thank you all so much for being here.
5: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to understand that, like, you know, an uh, uh, injury to one of us is an injury to all of us. Um These things happen and they set a precedent. There's been precedent set, you know, since the beginning of uh, private property that like, you know, landlords can can treat people without land or property like shit. Um, And, you know, us setting a counter narrative that organized power can defeat landlords, that there are more of us than there are of them that, you know. All it takes is talking to your neighbors. All it takes is getting to know the conditions that are happening to, you know, your next door neighbor might be happening to you. All this is very necessary um, to understand that as a class, we are all united under the fact that we can be exploited. And Sharice and her family, um, you know, were once homeowners and they still are. They still this home is theirs, but they were uh, were not safe from the landlord class, even though they were homeowners. Um, And I think it's very important to understand that that all of us are precarious under this system. All of us are targets under this system. And if we don't organize together as a class against the landlords, then we're never going to be safe. And how
1: do we get involved?
5: Uh, You can follow us uh, on Brooklyn Eviction Defense on cross-social medias. You can go on our website. We have ways you can either sign up um for an orientation to become a member to get involved with on the ground organizing all right. and we
1: will see all of that online at brooklyn defense you can also check out crown heights tenant union thank you so much Sharish, joel and nico for joining on us we are going to continue to follow this story and uh, onward out there thank you all
5: great thanks. thanks thank you have a good day
1: you too All right, folks, that's it for now. We're going to listen to Some Unholy War by Amy Winehouse, and then we'll go on to talk to some Starbucks baristas for our second segment.
0: Some Unholy War by Amy Winehouse. You're listening to the Independent NewsHour on WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue on to our next segment, I want to let everybody know we released our beautiful February print edition of The Independent a couple of days ago. Feature articles include an interview with political comedian Francesca Fiorentini, an essay by Nicholas Powers on what the left doesn't understand about Mayor Eric Adams. And a look at how tenants from Brooklyn to Bronx are fighting for their right to heat and hot water during the winter months.
1: And you can find the new issue in our red and white street boxes around the city, at public libraries, bookstores, cafes, laundromats, movie theaters, and other venues, or online. Read it and share it.
0: That's right. And our new issue also includes coverage of various labor struggles including the surging movement to unionize Starbucks which brings us to our next segment. In the past week six Starbucks stores in New York City and on Long Island have filed for union recognition with the National Labor Relations Board the first ones to do so in the New York City region. They are among the more than 80 Starbucks stores in at least 23 states that have sought to unionize since baristas at a Buffalo Starbucks store voted to unionize more than two months ago. Joining us now to talk about all this are two baristas, Megan DeMota and Cynthia Villeneuve from a Starbucks store in Bath Beach, Brooklyn, which filed for union recognition last week, the first one in Brooklyn to do so. Megan and Cynthia, welcome to WBAI Radio.
7: Hi. <laughs> Hi,
0: it's great to have you. How our, are you? We're oh, doing great, and uh, uh, it's great to have you with us uh, uh, so, the first question is, uh, uh, Starbucks has made it clear that it's fiercely opposed to unions. So, why did you and your fellow co-workers decide to try and unionize uh, anyway?
2: To have a voice, to be the partner that they want us to be, to feel like the partner that they want us to be.
7: Yeah, because, like, you know, we we work together already, and we we kind of help each other out. And that's kind of what a, a, a union is about is finding out what your workers, what all the workers, different workers need to feel like safe and, and respected at their job. So I think that's what a union's about.
0: Right. And, and what are the, some of the working conditions uh, at your, at your store and other Starbucks stores that uh, you all are concerned about and, and, are hoping having a union can uh, improve.
2: Well, I mean, well, that's you, what we're hoping to talk about yeah, at the table with them of what we can do differently.
7: Yeah. I think, I think that conditions have, has, has gotten like drastically different over the years. Um, so I think we want to be able to communicate what's important to us at like, in our in our safety at our job, especially now with, you know, working in a coffee shop uh, does have a lot of things like, you know, people hang around for long periods of time and stuff like that. So that's stuff that you, we all deal with in different ways. But I think as workers, we know how to deal with that best for us. And sometimes when we're talking about that, sometimes management or corporate doesn't understand that because they're not in that place with us. And that's why the union's important because we are in that place and we know what we need.
0: Right. And, and on, on things like uh, uh, sick pay and uh, lack of steady hours, how much of a concern has that become?
2: I mean, that's always been a concern. It's, it's, it, it's always been that way.
7: When it can be improved?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah
7: I, I, I think what one of the driving reasons for a lot of people uh, supporting a union is because we want to be able to have the time to like sick time for new partners doesn't come as quickly as it does for older partners because older partners are accruing time so It meaning when people get sick, like now when they're hired, they're not getting as much time, which I think has made people feel like we need to, because we end up helping each other out in coverage when they can't get that time. So it's like, if we're helping each other out, why are we not able to come together and try and make this safer for us?
0: Right. And just, uh, um, one other, I guess, working condition question, uh, Cynthia, you've worked at uh, Starbucks for, for six years, and Megan, I understand you've worked there for 10 years, but uh, Cynthia, uh, I understand that four years ago, uh, you were not, uh, that management would not allow you to change your work schedule so that you could spend more time uh, with your sister who was dying of cancer. Uh, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, and, yeah, that and... was a
2: hard time. Yeah. Um... I was just trying to get weekends off to spend time with her and it was denied by my manager. So, so I followed, I followed the protocol that was put in there where you talk to your manager and then you talk to your district manager who came in and told me that my store was too high volume for me to have a weekend off. So I, I had worked there for four years with, without ever having a weekend off and, and not minding. Cause that was, that was fine for me. It worked for me.
7: I, I actually had a, a similar situation with my mother who was sick with cancer and we also, I also struggled with time to uh, be with her when she needed somebody there with her. Uh, So that also became an issue because like I said, they will say like there, we're flexible and you can work around our hours because that's what Starbucks is about. We want you to feel comfortable so you can have flexible hours and it's able for you to work that way. But it really, Hasn't always felt that way. Even you know, like years ago. Now it's like when you think about it, because um, my mother has passed away now, (laughs) like six years. That I've I had the same issue years ago, and you know, and that's stressful. I'm so sorry. I'm just honestly thankful for my partners. That's that's same. That's why I want the
2: union, you know, to to protect us. Like my partners were the ones who kept my job safe for me. Yeah, and I I could. I could never pay them back for that other than building this and yes, helping it, to build something that'll be there to protect other workers from this.
1: And and can you quickly describe this term partners and how it's used with Starbucks and how that model they have kind so, of is hypocritical considering their anti-union position? Right.
2: So when you start with the company, they, they tell you you're a partner because you get stock in the company, which makes you a partner of it. Right. But that's pretty much where it ends. That's pretty much where that, that yeah. partnership feeling ends. But us as baristas, we take that partnership seriously. Like, we all we all really do feel like partners. We have such a bond with each other. There's not a time that we're not laughing or joking or having just a really good time at work.
7: And like like Cynthia said, we help each other out. Like, when stuff is going on in other people's lives and they need help, like for coverage or just even like rides places or yeah. money for a cab places. Like we help each other out like that. Um, we, we do this. The thing is, is we feel that partnership as yeah, we built that family that <laughs> yeah. we were told to, to build. Yeah. That they it created in their minds. But then when we come to them with this partnership, you know, it feels like one-sided. We're, yeah,
1: exactly. Well, hopefully, maybe, and hopefully that, that partnership that you all have created is going to create a, a steadier ground for the, the sort of necessary solidarity going into this struggle. Um, okay. but speaking, speaking of, there've already been protests held at multiple, um, Starbucks and, um, We'll talk about that in a little bit, but the first Starbucks to unionize was actually um, an Elmwood store in Buffalo when they voted in December um, to, yes, to unionize. And they made national headlines and marked the first time in 50 years of Starbucks history that a store has successfully unionized. Here we're going to play a clip from the National Labor Relations Board announcement of the election results in Buffalo. Here we go. And here's that clip from Buffalo. We're going to cue that up.
0: Of of that clip, uh, uh, the Baristas in Buffalo, of course, were very excited when they won that uh, election. For those
1: of you who couldn't hear it, it was shrieking, shrieking. Just imagine.
7: I could tell you that I was shrieking when I was watching that. I was so excited for them.
0: And how closely had y'all been following events in in Buffalo? And how did that um, affect what y'all are doing today?
7: It
2: affects my daily life. Yeah. Like I follow. It's religiously. Yeah, no, we, every morning.
7: we definitely have been following them since they were public um, because I, I think, I mean, as someone who's worked for the company a long time, it's definitely not the first time it's been brought up. Like, so it it was a big deal to see someone actually forming a union. And so I was definitely, and, and Cynthia, I think we were basically talking back and forth about how amazing it was, the things they were doing. So yeah
0: and um uh, as far as organizing a, a, a union uh Cynthia I understand you, um uh your your mother's a a, a union member and oh, and yeah. and that that had a a big influence on your desire to want to have a union too
2: yeah my mom's worked for the post office for I don't even know how long Shout thirty out to the years post
7: office
2: she worked there for 30 years it was a great union she she always always a uh, Thanks for union for everything. Um, my partner's also in a union for eight years. My father
7: also was in a union, actually. My <laughs> father was a liquor salesman, um, uh, and he worked for the liquor distribution union in New York. So um, I also grew up, um, like, used to seeing my father. My father even striked at certain points for negotiations. So I, I do have that
1: grow we'll out
0: drink to
7: that yeah, absolutely. yeah
1: that that explains a lot so hopefully you you all will be able to continue that lineage and whatever in whatever way you you choose to tap. yeah so. thank,
7: you. thank you yeah well coffee and liquor isn't that different you know i grew up around liquor and the way people like coffee is really not that different
1: oh especially in new york yeah anyway anyway you all so there have been protests at Starbucks all across the country today, actually, following last week's firing of all seven members of an organizing committee at a Starbucks in Memphis, Tennessee. This is not legal to fire organizing members, just for the record. in another act of solidarity, in addition to all people around the country, you know, joining up, protesting, a trombone player joining the picket line today. We're going to hear a little bit about that. And we're going to hear one of the employees who was fired explaining the firing let's go to that clip
5: protesting because they felt that it was much more necessary to get rid of a third of the store at this point than to allow us to have our organized union and they thought apparently that they're taking care of us better than we are
1: so that sounds like some of what we heard from you as far as the taking care of goes but how how did it feel to see these seven organizers get fired uh when you're when you're doing the same thing
7: you know, I I saw you know I saw Starbucks union busting uh, Buffalo pretty hard, and I I I was I have to say I was surprised they went that far. Um, it, that is definitely not something they can do, and what they did was blatant union busting. Um, so uh, I it, it's it's annoying because a lot of what Starbucks says in their union busting is like, we're, you know, we, we are okay with letting our workers organize, but that is blatantly not the case with what they did in Memphis.
1: Talk a little bit more about their response, management's response since you've gone public about this. Crickets.
7: Yeah, really. It's to, to us. I haven't heard anything. They're almost acting like it's not happening um, as of, right now um so there's you know there's that but we're all kind of expecting the same thing that they did in buffalo like captive audience meetings um and things like that um they're they they're of course have been sending you know a uh like representatives like uh, dms and regional managers to the store um that it is the same thing they did in Buffalo. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an union busting tactic considering this isn't something that usually happens. Yeah. And just right. our listeners, go ahead.
0: Right. So, uh, we're on the WBAI 99.5 FM. We're talking with uh, two baristas, uh, Megan and Cynthia from uh, the first store in Brooklyn, uh, to file for union recognition last week. Uh, uh, Megan and and Cynthia, uh, how difficult was it to convince other uh, partners at your store to unionize? And what what did they have questions about?
2: I mean, it wasn't about convincing. Most people have the same idea already of just wanting to um, be able to build a career as opposed to just a job as it's advertised. Starbucks does advertise as a career with career opportunities,
7: so. I think a lot, I think it was, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult because of the fact that a lot of us already feel like we're kind of, we have each other's back already. So, you know, I think that, that, that's really key, you know, um in general, because I think they feel like this is, they feel like more confident in us as a unit, like a union, than what we've received so far. Right. And um, also,
1: there were 72 official public officials who have signed on to a letter of support of
7: you all. What's your response to that? Awesome. Yeah, we're really nice. excited about that. We actually had a, a Senator Andrew Gernardis and uh councilman, councilman uh councilman Justin Brandon come to our store to show support. Oh, we're right. really glad to see that. Like that I'm there they're in our area in Brooklyn and so that's really good to see because uh we wanna we wanna have a fair election without obnoxious union busting, you know, um, mm-hmm. because that's giving workers the right to have a voice, giving the workers to have a say. We should just be able to have an election.
1: Right. And I just misspoke there. It's uh, 76 elected officials, not 72. Now, uh, last question here. Where do you all see things going from here? Um, You've requested your election to be held March 3rd.
7: Yeah, it's it definitely won't be that date uh, probably will be delayed. But what we'd of course like to see is more just stores. Move
5: forward.
2: And move forward more, more stores join us.
7: Yeah. But of, of course, move forward and have a union and, and see that happen throughout the rest of Brooklyn and New York City.
0: Yeah. Right. Right on. I, I'll just uh, note uh, there's been reporting in the past week that Starbucks has hired a, a union avoidance law firm to file mm-hmm. as much paperwork at the NLRB to delay elections. They're paying $550 per hour to the lawyers who are inundating uh, NLRB with these uh, lawsuits. But it certainly seems like there's a, a nonetheless growing momentum for the uh, unionization at Starbucks. So, uh, Megan and Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI.
7: Thank you, you so much.
0: Thank, thank you. you. Yep. Great. All right, we'll be back after this short uh, music break, and we'll be talking with cultural historian Kazimbi Balagoon. That was Black Man's World by Alton Ellis. I'm your host, John Tarleton, for the Independent News Hour here with Amber Gagarian. And, and you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, I want to thank uh, everybody who recently gave uh, during WBAI's emergency uh, fund appeal to help raise funds to keep uh, the station's. Uh, tra- uh, Antenna and transmitter atop of four times square in the middle of Manhattan that beams the signal out across the city and beyond. Uh, At the station, we were able to raise more than $70,000 during that fund drive. So, again, thank you to all who gave and helped keep community and community radio, WBAI being such a a unique source of news, current affairs, cultural coverage, music, all of that, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you didn't give but you're now realizing, wow, maybe I really wish I had given or I didn't know about it, Um, you can always give to this station. You can always use the help, uh, 212-209-2950. Again, it's 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give2wbai.org and make a one-time contribution or sign up to be a monthly sustainer to be a WBAI buddy and get all sorts of great benefits when you do.
2: And where else
1: could you listen to the people who are on the steps of a Crown Heights home protecting the home from marshals trying to throw them out of the house? Where else are you going to listen to these baristas who are just deciding, young baristas deciding to unionize against a global corporation? Where else are we going to talk about Black Marxism and Andre Lord and Du Bois with the wonderful Kazembe Balagoon? Nowhere else. Only WBAI. Call now. 212 209 2950. That's two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Or give the number to WBAI dot org online. That's give the number two WBA or WBAI dot org online. Sorry, I got myself excited. Give oh, thank you. Five I couldn't bucks, say ten bucks. I couldn't say
0: it better. <laughs> That's right. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. Uh, uh, all right, so turning to our final segment, we're going to talk about Black History Month, and in particular, two films that are going to be screened at the Maisel Documentary Center in Harlem over the next week or so. One is about uh, the poet Audre Lorde in her time in Germany, and the other is about the great writer, historian, and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who also has some interesting ties to Germany. Uh, Joining us to talk about these films is Kazimbe Balagoon. He's a project manager at the Rosa Luxemburg Stiff Tongues New York office. He's also a cultural historian, a contributing writer for The Independent, and so much more. Kazimbe, welcome back to WBAI Radio.
8: Hey, thank you so much, Amber. Thank you so much, John, for the wonderful invitation. And let me say, please, yes, give to WBAI. I remember... Um, first listening to WBI when I was 16 years old and never turning the station. Um, you know, let's let's keep uh, that's that sliver of of four times square, um, uh, corporate free, uh, community based liberated zone we have at times square. So please let's keep it a liberated zone in times square. Please give the WBAI.
0: That's right, 212 209 2950. Well, uh, our first my First question for you, Kazembe, is, is can you just talk about these uh, these two films, their significance, why it's uh, important at this time to reflect on the life and work uh, of both Audre Lorde and W.E.B. Du Bois?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so really excited to be screening these two films at the um, uh, Maisel Sim Documentary Center, which is uh, located at 343 Malcolm X Boulevard uh, in the heart of Harlem, right on 127th Street. Uh, Malcolm X Boulevard, some people call Lance Avenue. Um, these, um, we're screening two films, as you mentioned. Um, Audrey Lloyd in Berlin on February 18th, which happens to be our birthday, and also um WBEB Du Bois, um, A Biography of Four Voices on February 23rd, which is also his birthday. Um, you know, uh, you know, and um these films are really significant because when I was doing this program, originally I was just thinking about the connections and ties with Germany. You mentioned the fact that I'm a project manager with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in the New York office. We're um, a public policy-based organization affiliated with the left party of Germany um, with a strong tradition and interest in, you know, the Black Freedom Struggle. And both Audre Lorde and W. B. Du Bois were thoroughly influenced by Germany. Um, Audre Lorde, this specific film that we're going to be screening on the 18th, is a documentation of her time um, between 1987 and 1992, when she was invited by the director Dagmar Schultz to speak in Germany. And she also went there to um, get healing from cancer. And what ended up happening was Audre Lorde, um, who was at that time you uh, know, uh, very famous for poetry, her biographies, specifically the work called Zami, um, went to Germany, um, gave a lecture, and uh, promptly uh, told all the white people in the lecture hall to leave. And then had a conversation with all the Black women in the, uh, in the lecture hall. Um, and that became the start of what is today and the Afro-German movement. Um, and, you know, and it's important to note also that at that time, the term Afro-German was not used. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of Black Germans, most of them who were um, the children of uh, American GIs and, and um, German um, citizens, um, but they had no name, no registration on the census, um, really like very little in terms of a cultural identity that was re- recognized by Germany. And Audrey Lorde, Said this is an issue. This is a problem. How do we organize around this? And so, that intervention started the Afro-German movement as we know now, that has uh, sparked into the uh, initiative for um, for Black people in Germany. So, this film actually details that movement, but also Audre Lorde's development and own healing as a writer, as a, as a cultural artist, and uh, in, the, in the second film. Um, Certainly, um, the WB Du Bois from WB Du Bois studied in Germany. Um, he spoke German. Um, he studied under Max Weber um, at Humboldt University in uh, in where that you know in uh, in Berlin. And his his study of sociology um, ended up leading him to write the seminal Philadelphia Negro. Um, so very much influenced, and obviously um, another part of it is that. Um, the boys attended um, meetings of the Social Democratic Party in Germany at the time, and it led to his um, development as a Marxist. And later on October 1st, 1961, um, when he joins the Communist Party in the United States, he cites uh, his visits to the Social Democratic Party in Germany as one of the reasons he becomes a communist. So both these films both have um, a lot to say in terms of the transatlantic experience, black experience, but also how these 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 individuals ended up radicalizing Germany and Germany radicalizing them.
1: Now we're going to hear from both of these figures first from Audre Lorde about being a black lesbian in the 50s and then W.B. Du Bois speaking in 1960 in an address to the Wisconsin Socialist Club in Madison and, and this speech was given in 1960 when he was 92 years old, just months before his removal to Africa where he died in Ghana in 1963. Now we're going to these clips. First Audre Lorde, then W.B. Du Bois. did
2: I ran with we knew we
1: were outsiders. We knew we were outside
4: the pale. We lived in the village. We were outsiders. We were dykes, right? A lot of us were artists. We hated typing, <laughs> right? We didn't want straight jobs. Whatever we did, we were at the fringe. Now, this, of course, was the 50s. It was like the, um, the gay girls' version of the beatniks.
9: The extraordinary uprising of the students all over the South and beginning in the North shows an awareness of our situation which is most encouraging. But it still does not reach the center of the problem. And that center is not simply the right of Americans to spend their money as they wish and according to law, but the chance for American Negroes to have money to spend because of employment by which they can make a decent wage. What then is the next step? It is for American Negroes in increasing numbers and more and more widely to insist upon the legal rights which are already theirs and then to add to that increasingly a socialistic form of government an insistence upon the welfare state which denies the further carrying out of industry for the profit of those corporations which monopolize wealth and power. The stopping of a government of wealth for wealth and for will and the returning of governmental power to the individual voter
1: your reaction
8: um, you know i think that you know both of those uh clips really kind of interjoin with each other because when audrey law talks about being a part of the fringe i mean she's talking about being a part of a girl gang, a lesbian in the 1950s during a time of the McCarthy era, um, at, at a time when W. B. Du Bois himself, who was actually a resident of Brooklyn, was arrested for being a member of the Peace Information Center, um, which was suspected to be under communist influence. Um, and so that specter of both um, anti-communism and anti-gay LGBT thought was, was something that permeated through Black life, in the 1950s and 1960s. And so in a lot of ways, both Du Bois and, and and Lord share that in common. Um, but they also share something in common too, is that the consistent art of the invention. Um, you know, like, you know, that speech that Du Bois gives, he's like you mentioned, he's 92 years old, and he's 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 still radicalizing himself, you know. Um, and he's speaking in the time of of of, of, of pan-Africanism and, and the meaning of communism. I mean, you know. The time that he gave that speech, um, you know, um, Max Roach, um, Abby Lincoln, and um, Rosa Guy uh, are protesting on the floor of the United Nations um, against the assassination of Patricia Lumumba. At the time he gave that speech, John Coltrane produces his great classic, um, uh, the Africa Brass album. Um, At that time, uh, Max Roach produces Percussion Bittersweet. Um, you know, so all this, like, ideas around Blackness and Pan-Africanism and international consciousness is permeating also in terms of Du Bois to the point where um, on April 1st, 1961, um, he, he joins a Communist Party, and in April 2, 1961, he flies to Ghana and becomes a citizen and renounces the U.S. citizenship and begins to build an encyclopedia Africana. Um, similarly, Audre Lorde, Ends up in Germany, and like as I mentioned before, forming a, 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 a no, be, be, um, building the seeds of the Afro-German protest movement that was very much influenced by the Black protest movement in the United States. And so you see both these people, both both in that context of local localization of understanding their particular local context, but also going going much more international. And I think that you know it's important to understand this history. Um, this is this is history that that, that, you know, this shakes the foundation of what we know about America. Um, it shakes the foundation of what we know about ourselves. Um, but also it's very expansive in terms of what we know about black history. And um, I think that, you know, we're, we're really lucky to have these ancestors, uh, you know, uh, paved the way for us in these conversations.
0: Right. And uh, it, speaking of black history, one of uh, Du Bois's uh, seminal works, of course, was Black Reconstruction, which was uh, published in 1935. Uh, can you talk about the significance of that book and, and the breakthroughs he made uh, with that book, and also uh, why it's uh, so relevant today when we uh, face another uh, white nationalist uh, backlash, like similar to the one that ultimately doomed uh, Reconstruction in the 1870s?
8: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I want to just, you know, say, um, repeat a quote that Martin Luther King that said about Du Bois, that Du Bois was a genius who, cho- who chose to be a communist. And Du Bois was a genius. You know, he wrote novels, he wrote plays, he wrote poetry. Um, one of his seminal works is The Souls of Black Folk, which is like, you know, one of the most intense personal uh, explorations of Black life ever written in the 20th century. And he has that famous line, the 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 um problem of 2030 is a problem of the color line
0: uh, I think we've uh, briefly lost Kazimbe here Kazimbe, are you coming back so we we had Kazimbe on the line and we lost him in mid sentence uh, Kazembe was talking about the uh, monumental intellectual contributions of W.E.B. Uh, du Bois uh, throughout his uh, long and very productive life. Um uh so we're gonna try to we're try, we're gonna hope uh Kazimbe uh, can rejoin us uh, shortly. Um uh, Kazembe, you know, uh yeah please come back if you can. Uh, you know Amma, just uh you know listening to uh Kazembe talk about Audre Audrey Lord and and uh W E B Du Bois It's really been fascinating, and I think uh, Kazimbe's about to rejoin us. Uh, Kazimbe, are you there? Okay, Kazimbe, uh, you just need to unmute yourself.
1: But we can't hear you, but it doesn't look – I don't think you're muted, though.
0: Okay, we got Kazimbe back on the line, but Kazimbe, you've got to uh, – we're not getting your voice in. you just need to unmute yourself. Cause Hello. Hey, Hello.
8: welcome back. Hey, how you doing? I'm sorry about that. So oh, yeah,
0: welcome back from Exile. Exactly, exactly. So we start with
8: that, I just thought talk about I still talk about Du Bois and then everyone shuts down. But let me just say really, <laughs> about, about, about about Black Reconstruction get to my point, is that you know, Black Reconstruction was a revisionist text. Um it was a text that was written against the that the the history that was created by white southerners upon the defeat of the movement of black reconstruction after the civil war, um, black people were elected to local office. Um, There were freemen banks established. Mm -hmm. There were public schools established that served both blacks and whites. Um, There was suffrage given to white farmers as well as black people. And this was something that was rejected by the ruling class. And not only were they rejected by the ruling class, but in, in its place, there was a history that was put in place to justify the re-enslavement of Black people. Um, there was a history, you know, many of the Confederate statues that have been taken down now were placed after Reconstruction, right? As a eternal reminder of the, the power of the South. And so in so 1935, Du Bois to as Black Reconstruction to act as a kind of like, uh, an intervention of, of sorts of the historical record, both in terms of the history of Black people shaping this country through their labor, but also as a, as as a subconscious working class that um, ultimately um, created um, the first seeds of democracy in this country, which was Reconstruction. You know, which was going towards universal suffrage, going towards economic justice, and going towards just land redistribution. Um, these are all themes that, that have continued to come up the next 100 years. So the, to 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, we have Martin Luther King and the March of Washington saying, um, we've come to cash a check, you know? And that, and that check was the promise of jobs and universal suffrage, right? Now, 50 years after, or 60 years, close to 60 years after the March of Washington, we're, we're in a period of another reconstruction, you know what I'm saying? Um, de- demanding the defense of, of voting rights, demanding the defense of full unemployment or the guaranteed income, the demand for free healthcare. These are all things that I think that are part of our, 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 our common vision of what uh, what citizenship means in this country. And all are had laid is laid, laid its, its, its seeds within reconstruction. And I think that, you know, this is what, um, what Du Bois has to offer but there's also what is really driving this conversation right now in into the history of this country because there's two different versions of history that's going on right now. There's a white supremacist of advantageous history on the one hand and then there's, there's a there's an other part of the history that's more connected towards a historical reckoning and a want to heal and deal with the the the, the, the actual issues of racial injustice black oppression, oppression of women, oppression of LGBT communities, and really redefine what citizenship looks, looks like. And I think that's a project that Du Bois was, was thoroughly a uh, part of in his intellectual life.
0: And, and just to note real quickly, uh, during Reconstruction, uh, uh, it was not only huge advances for blacks in the South, but you you had public schools for the first time that also benefited poor whites. Uh, poor whites, in many cases, uh, gained voting rights for the first time as well. So. A pattern throughout American history, when Black liberation advances, other groups of uh, disenfranchised people advance as well.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Like this is like this is this is this is this is this is part of the conversation about what a multiracial democracy looks like, right? And so, oftentimes, um, you know, when we're having these conversations around citizenship, it's not just about the voting. But it's about all the other things that go along with it. It's about the access to education, which the boys and both the boys and Audrey Lord were very much into. They were they, they were like extremely erudite. Audrey um, Lord spoke German. Uh, w. B. Du Bois spoke German. Audrey uh, Lord studied German at Hunter College. She was a beneficiary of a uh, free education at Hunter College, um, along with Ruby D and uh, Bella Absarge, other people. So, yeah, I mean, so education is a very important uh, concept that comes up in both their lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, just to, to uh, bring it back to um, uh, the the films that are going to be screening, uh, can you just uh, fill us in again one more time on, on when and where uh, these films yeah, are absolutely. Going to
8: be? It's going to be at the Mazel set Documentary Cinema in the, in the Harder Hall on 127th Street, Malcolm X Boulevard, three four three Malcolm X Boulevard. Um, the both the 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 boy screening on February eighteenth. I mean, excuse me, the Al Lord screening on February eighteenth, and the boy screening on, t- on February twenty third are free and open to the public. Um, and,
0: what
8: time? Um, and um, they're both going to be at seven thirty on February eighteenth. We'll actually be having a reception at 6.30, some 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 food, some drinks, some Friday night get-together. I mean, like, you know, in Audre Lord's autobiography, she cites that, you know, anytime she went to a party, she wanted to have food. So I want to honor her by making sure that your people eat. But certainly come through. Um, both screens at 7.30. Both screens are free. Um, they are asking for um, some proof of vaccination and masking um, during the course of the uh, screenings. But, um, but certainly, come together. I mean, I think that is a great opportunity for us to come together under in, the, in these dark times to feel the hearth and the fire of our ancestors, our heroes, uh, and learn from each other, and learn from the, the, the past that's laid, going towards the spring, so we're fortified for, for, the, for the work ahead. So, so um, I'm encouraging
0: sure yep.
1: everyone to come
2: up.
0: That, I, I agree. Thank, uh, thank you so much Kazembe Bala project manager Rosa De Luxemburg Stiftung, cultural historian contributing writer for the independent thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI radio
5: shout
8: out to Reggie I love you
1: thank you and thank you to our, to our sound engineer Reggie Johnson we're going to leave you all with Gorilla by the Midnight Band and yes that's Gil Scott Heron's voice you're getting here. oh that's
8: my favorite <laughs> I
4: said I believe, man, that we're going